Our sermon today is taken from Exodus 5, verses 1 to 23. This is the word of God. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness, that they may sacrifice to, to the Lord our God, lest he fell upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks, as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them, you shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, Let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the man, that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourself, wherever you can find it. But your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task, each day as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all your tasks of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Then the foremen of, Is of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, Make bricks, and behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, You are idle, you are idle. That is why you say, Let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, You shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, The Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us think in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to these people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to these people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Thus says the word. Amen. Thank you, Devin. Friends, welcome again to uh, CCC, and this is our first Sunday of doing two services, and I'm glad that you guys are coming to the first one. We're worried about how many people are going to come to the first one, but apparently it's, it's a need, so I'm excited um, that you guys are here. Um, let me pray for us before we begin in our sermon. Father, calm our hearts, let our minds be attentive to your word, and let our focus be grabbed by a good news 
that is greater than anything else we've ever heard. Let this be a reminder to us of those who know you, and let this be an invitation to those who don't. Father, have more mercy on your people. Let your word be true, and speak loudly that your church may be built for your glory. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Friends, we're continuing our series in the life of Moses, and right now we're in Exodus chapter 5. And just a quick recap of what's happened so far. We've seen that in Exodus chapter 1 and 2, as you guys I know know the story, that Israel calls God, or Israel, God's people, were enslaved under the rule of Pharaoh in Egypt. And then in Exodus chapter 3 and 4, you see that God calls Moses to free God's people, Israel, out of Egypt. And Moses begrudgingly finally said yes at the end. And then now we're in our passage today, Exodus chapter 5, where Moses finally goes back to Egypt and he interacts with Pharaoh for the first time. Now, Moses already knew that the task was going to be difficult. The readers knew the task was going to be difficult. But I think what was surprising here is not the fact that it was difficult. What was surprising is why it was so difficult. See, we thought the main weapon Pharaoh was going to use to keep Israel enslaved, we thought he was going to use his military might. But then you study the passage, and you quickly see that Pharaoh wielded a much scarier weapon a much more subtle weapon. And we'll see what this weapon is later. But for now, let me just point out that the genius of Pharaoh's weapon of how to keep Israel in slavery is how subtle it is. It's so subtle. It's so cunning. It's so tricky. It didn't just keep Israel in slavery, but it made Israel believe that staying in slavery was better for them compared to worshiping God. Just skip to the end of our passage here, chapter 5, verse, verse 20. What do you see Israel start doing? They started cursing Moses. You know, God sent Redeemer. They started cursing him. But just one chapter before this, in chapter 4, they believed Moses. They were all about Moses. They were worshiping the Lord. See, in about, in about the span of one chapter, Pharaoh and his subtle trick succeeded to turn God's people against Moses and two, to make God's people actually want to appease Pharaoh and stay in slavery rather than leaving Egypt and worshiping God. He's a genius, and I'll show you why later. And, and I think this confusion, this back and forth, right, between slavery and worship, I think that's a dance that God's people, us here today, still struggle with. When we think, you know, when somebody says, you have to live your life dedicated to God, when we think of a life that's dedicated to God, isn't it true that what often comes to mind is a life full of limitations? Isn't it true that what comes to mind is a life full of prohibitions? Isn't it true that if people are looking into the Christian life from the outside, they often feel like it's such a limiting life, right? Some people have said it looks kind of slavish, there's a t tons of things in the not-to-do list, right? Opium for the masses, said Karl Marx. And you know what? Maybe what they see is true. They might not be wrong all the time. Perhaps many Christians actually do treat their obedience to God as a slave does to a tyrant, rather than a child trusting and loving their father. I certainly struggle between the two in my own Christian walk, and I have a hunch that I'm not the only one. Why is that? Why do we have this dance between slavery and obedience and worship and we're, we confuse the both? Well, I think because like Israel back then, the church today is still 
is so stuck in it because I think there's a lot of cunning tricks that are being used by leaders today that make us go back and forth between slavery and worship. And we got to figure this out. We got to figure it out or else our Christian walks will always feel slavish and burdensome. Worship will be something that we might look like we're doing but never really actually fall into. And our lives will never magnify the beauty of our God. So let's dive into the passage. Three things I want to point out. Point one, slavery's appeal. Point two, Pharaoh's tricky tongue. And point three, God's affectionate silence. Slavery's appeal, Pharaoh's tricky tongue, God's affectionate silence. First point, slavery's appeal. The first thing we see here immediately are two different kings that rule in two very different ways, Pharaoh and God. They're in enmity, in opposition to one another, both wanting Israel to serve them. Look, look at verse 1 and 2. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord? Who is Yahweh? That I should obey his voice and let Israel go. I don't know Yahweh. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. See, when Pharaoh says, who is the Lord, Pharaoh isn't asking for additional information. I mean, he's a ruler of a country, Egypt, where their immigrants, the Israelites, the Jews, has grown in such a way that they've become the close majority, if not the majority. That's what we see in Exodus chapter 1. Would he not be informed of their religion and God? Of course they would. If a particular group of immigrants came to Indonesia... Right? And they grew to a point where they almost become the majority, if not the majority. And then they stay here for 400 years. Will not our president know their, their religion and their God? Of course he would. When Pharaoh is asking, who is Yahweh? He's not asking for additional information like he doesn't know Yahweh. He's declaring enmity. He's saying, I don't acknowledge this Yahweh. You see? And therefore, I will not obey him. These people are my slaves, not his so Moses here in verse 3 repeats himself as if Pharaoh's problem is that he has bad hearing, right? Verse 3, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. You probably didn't hear me right. Please let us go three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Three days journey doesn't mean that they're going to go for three days and come back. It just means they're going to go for three days, worship the Lord, and then they're gone. They're not coming back. We're going to go for three days. We're going to worship the Lord. If you don't let us do that, bad things are going to start to happen. That's paraphrase of verse 3, okay? But see, Pharaoh's problem, you remember, was not his ears, it was his heart. So in verse 4, Pharaoh refused again, and not only did Pharaoh tell the Israelites to go back to work in verses 5 to 8, but in verse 9, he said, let heavier work be laid on them. Now, something really interesting, stick with me here, in verse 9, let heavier work be laid on the men. Focus on the word work. In the Hebrew, work here is an intentional play on words. The word translated as work in verse 9 in your ESV English translations to describe working for Pharaoh in the Hebrew is actually the same exact word to the word serve that we find in chapter 4 verse 23 when describing serving God. Here, let me read Exodus chapter 4 verse 23. Um, God said, let my people go that they may serve or work for me. It's the same action verb, okay? But yet... When this word work is associated to Pharaoh, it entails slavery. But when this word work is associated to God, it entails worship. Here's the point. 
Do you see why it's so hard to differentiate between slavery and worship? Because from the outside, they look like the same. They both involve work. They both involve some kind of service. They both demand something of us. They both demand some kind of sacrifice from us. Submitting to Pharaoh requires sacrifice, as we clearly see in the passage, but submitting to God requires sacrifices and service too. Worship requires sacrifice. Look at, look at verse 3. You see this theme again. Moses said, let us go three days journey into the wilderness that we may, what? You'd think the word there is worship, right? Let us go three days that we may worship to the Lord our God. But yet the word there says, let us go and journey three days so that we may sacrifice the Lord our God. See, both, both worshiping God and slavery to Pharaoh involve, involves acts of sacrifice. They both involve obeying a king with a higher power than you. And they both involve sacrificing your own wills when the will of that higher power is in opposition of your will. So then, the question is, how is worshiping God any different than slavery? It sounds very similar, doesn't it? And that's why people read the Bible, I think, they see all these rules and expectations from God and, and they kind of cringe because it feels like slavery. It looks like tyrannical rule, but it's not. Slavery and what God calls us to in the Bible are two very different things. How? How, how, how different are they? How can we know the difference? Well, look, first look at the description of how sacrifice to Pharaoh is described in verse 9. And we're going to compare it how sacrifice to God is described to in verse 1. Okay? Sacrifice to Pharaoh, first one. Sacrifice to Pharaoh, verse 9. Let heavier work be laid on the men. Heavier work, harder work, burdensome work. The imagery of sacrificing and serving Pharaoh here is like somebody who's carrying an oversized rock on their back. But now, let's look at how sacrifice or serving God is portrayed. Go to verse 1. It's completely different. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may, what? Hold a feast to me in the wilderness. Hold on a second. I thought Moses said in verse 3, let us go through today's journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice the Lord our God. Why is it in verse 1 he's interchanging the word sacrifice with the word feast? Let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. Is worshiping God sacrificial or is it festive? Well, both. The point here is unlike service to Pharaoh, service to Yahweh shouldn't feel like someone forcing you carrying a heavy rock on your back, but rather it's like having a festival. See, it's hard to tell the difference because if you look at it from a distance, it's hard to distinguish. It's easy to confuse the two. Both look like there's people working, there's people serving, there's people sacrificing in both camps. But yet as you walk closer to these two camps, the difference becomes clearer and clearer that in one place, the sacrifices are accompanied by screams and tears. And in the other place, the sacrifices are accompanied by song and festivities. And I think a huge reason why the church can become a source of hurt to people is because we often confuse worship with slavery. I don't know if you guys have been listening a lot to podcasts. My wife does, so then I do too. Um, there's this phrase recently arising, especially in the West, and it's called deconstructing your faith. 
Have you heard that term being thrown around? Deconstructing your faith, deconstructing your faith. And these are where people are talking, uh, talking about their Christian lives and they're, they're taking some time to think back about their Christian experiences growing up. And the, when they look back at their childhood and their Christian experiences, it dawned on them that many of the Christian rules and regulations and prohibitions enforced unto them when they were younger, it smelled like worship, it felt like worship, but once they, get, they got out of it, they had some time to think and look back and they start thinking to themselves, hold on a second, why did that feel more like slavery? And you hear this a lot, especially in, in the West, deconstruction your, your Christian faith, and many end up leaving the church altogether. And, and for some reason, I have a hunch that Jakarta is not too far behind. Asia is not that far behind. I, I have a hunch that some of us may grow up, or perhaps some of us are going through this process right now, and we look back at our Christian experiences growing up, and we think, was that worship? Or was that slavery? And look, sure, maybe some of them had unfair judgments about their past, okay? But to be honest, hearing some of their stories, it did a lot of them did sound like slavery more than worship. And I find for the most part, they're rightfully hurt. And friends, we got to figure this out. The church must see the difference if we're ever going to get out of this cycle, okay? Let's, so let's dive deeper in our passage and see where the difference is. How can we tell apart what slavery is and what worship is? I think we see at least two differences from our passage today. First, here it is. The difference between slavery and worship. First, slavery finds the feeling of tiredness as a moral good in itself. Slavery finds the feeling of tiredness as a moral good in itself. Worship might make you tired, but it does not treat tiredness as a moral good in itself. Let me explain more. Look at verse 6. Let's continue in our passage. As it describes Pharaoh's slavery. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it. This is really interesting. Look at what Pharaoh is commanding here. Pharaoh is not interested in increasing the quantity of production. Pharaoh just wants to make their life harder and more tiring. He didn't, he didn't tell Israel, you have to make more bricks. He just simply made it harder to produce the same amount of bricks. The point is to increase tiredness. That's one sign that we're in a slavish place when we, or maybe the ministry that we're in, views the feeling of tiredness as a moral good in itself. And if you're not tired, there's this sense in which you, get, you feel guilty. You feel guilty that you're not tired. Why am I not tired? Am I not serving enough? Am I not giving enough? Am I not sacrificing enough? Am I not, am I not doing enough? Okay, just so that I'm not accused of preaching hyper grace, okay? Hyper grace is just grace and there's no sacrifice. Just so that I'm not accused of that, I'm not saying that a life of worship will never lead you to tiredness. The Lord might require that of you. He will require that of you. And when he does, the true worshiper is more than happy to comply. We're just starting two services this Sunday. And you know who's most affected by it? Not me, not Gray. The servant teams. Specifically, the music team. They get here usually at about 8.30. Now they have to get here right before 7. You know, and they have to come and prepare. And they have to go all the way to 12.30. You know, they're hungry for lunch. Ask them at 12.30 how they're feeling. I bet you they'll say, I'm, I'm kind of tired. <laughs> I'm not saying 
being faithful to God or living a life that's worshipful and obedient will never make you tired. No, no. But look, the feeling of tiredness is not a moral good in itself. And the level of how tired you are is not the ultimate measure of how worshipful you've been. Slavery does that. In slavery, tiredness no longer becomes a thing you're willing to embrace if God calls you to it, but it almost becomes an end goal in itself. That's a sign, I think, that a ministry has confused worship with slavery. Second, slavery is often led by a figurehead whose words have been made equal or close to the authority of God's word. But worshipers keep God's word, the Bible, as ultimate authority even over the leader. Okay, look what happens in verse 10. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Thus says Pharaoh. You remember hearing that phrase once before in this passage? Verse 1. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went, to the, went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord. That's no coincidence. There's a point being made here that Pharaoh's words is viewed by his followers as equal to God's words. Ultimate authority. When a human being claims that their words is as authoritative as God's words, that's a sign. Or let me give them the benefit of the doubt. It's at least a huge movement toward slavery. Pharaoh just can't do wrong, can he? There's no authority that stands above this person. He's always right. No one can challenge him. But yet you feel like every time you obey his words, somehow he's always advantaged and I'm always paying the cost. It's this weird. So how can you identify slavery and worship? How can you find, how can you figure out what slavery is? Well, two likely signs. One, slave, slavery glorifies the feeling of tiredness as a moral good in within itself. And slavery, too, elevates a human being to the level of infallibility. A human being has become infallible, a person who's often more interested in expanding their own personal kingdom rather than God's. That's the dynamic of slavery. Why does the church at times do more harm than good? Because friends, unfortunately, and you know this to be true from your own experiences, unfortunately, oftentimes, that's the dynamic you see in churches. A dynamic that CCC is not immune to and must always struggle to not fall into. To have an emperor-like leader who's been elevated to the level of infallibility and members who view the feeling of tiredness in serving this person's kingdom as a moral good in within itself. It's attractive, isn't it? It's so attractive because it feels like worship. But it's not. It's not worship. And why is it so hard to get out of it? Second point. Pharaoh's tricky tongue. Here's Pharaoh's subtle weapon that I mentioned earlier. He's a really smart guy, okay? First, it's important to remember that this Pharaoh was not the same Pharaoh that lived when Moses ran away from Egypt in Exodus chapter 2. Remember that middle of Exodus chapter 2, Moses did something bad, he ran away from Egypt, and then at the end of chapter 2, the Pharaoh died. This Pharaoh is a new Pharaoh, okay, in Exodus chapter 5. And this new Pharaoh is different than the old Pharaoh. He's much trickier. Look at verse 5 again with me. And Pharaoh said... Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. Okay? Do you remember the old Pharaoh also saw many Israelites, but what did he see? He saw a threat, and he decided to do what? He decided to kill all the male babies, right? Population control. We don't, we don't need these people doing a coup. We need, to, we need to kill them. 
But the new Pharaoh saw many Israelites in verse 5, and what did he see? Cheap labor. The old Pharaoh solved his problems with brute force, murder. The new Pharaoh solved his problems with a much more refined and cunning method. He enslaved them. And what's scary, his trickiness did not only enslave Israel, but also kept them in slavery. He keeps Israel in slavery with the same technique. He doesn't threaten their bodies. He messes with their heads. Let's continue in the passage. Okay, so because the straws were taken away, the resources to make bricks, right? And Israelites were not producing as many bricks. And then look at, what, look at verses 14 to 15, what happened. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters has set over them, were beaten. The Israelites, right? The foremen that represented the Israelites were beaten. Why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday, as in the past? Then the foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your people, your servants, like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet you say to us, make bricks? And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. Not, it's not our fault. Have you guys heard of the term gaslighting? Have you heard of that term before? It comes from a play in the 1930s, a popular play called Gaslight. And in this play, there's a husband and a wife. The husband kills a woman and hides the murder from everybody, but the wife becomes suspicious. And the way the husband tries to gain control over the wife's suspicion is by making the wife question her own sanity. How does he make the wife question her own sanity? Well, whenever the wife would go and look for something in the attic or in another room in the house, the husband would run and reduce the amount of gas in the house lights. And the house would look just a little bit darker and dimmer. And when the wife would look, at the, look around and say, it just got darker all of a sudden. And she would go to the husband, hey, what's wrong? Why is it darker in here? And the husband would say, nothing's wrong. It's not darker. What are you, what are you talking about? You're just making things up in your head. And in this play, the husband would do this continually over and over and over and over again to make the wife think that she's, she's the one that's going crazy. So that whenever the wife would question or suspect her husband for the murder, like she would question the lights, she'd start doubting herself. Is it just me? Is, is something wrong with me? Am I making things up? Am I going crazy? Is something wrong with me? And today the term gaslighting is still used to describe very subtle forms of manipulative control where the abused victim is blamed and made to believe that they're in the wrong, not the abuser. It's gaslighting. Look at verse 14. The taskmasters ask the Israelites, why aren't you making as many bricks? Why aren't you meeting your quota? Can you imagine what the Israelites are thinking? You're asking me that? <laughs> what do you mean why am I not making enough bricks? You're blaming us? You took away the straw. You took away the material that we need. Don't blame me for this. It's your fault. But then in verse 14, they get beat up as if the blame is on them. They're in the wrong, and they're so confused at this point. In verse 15, they go straight to Pharaoh, right? They think, surely something in the communication line broke here. Like, this is, something's off. Goes directly to Pharaoh, and then tells him, hey, the taskmaster stopped giving us straw, but then they require us to produce the same amount, and then they're blaming us and beating us up for not doing it. Something's off. The light just feels a bit dimmer here. And then in verse 15 to 16, what does Pharaoh say? You're lazy. You're lazy. He starts accusing them again. 
That's what idle means. Lazy. It is your fault. You're in the wrong here. Your laziness is the result of the production decrease. Can you imagine? They're just, I mean, so confused at this point. What is going on? This can't be my fault, is it? Is it? Is it dimmer here? It's crazy making. Pharaoh's trying, trying to make them believe that the lack of production and the tiredness that they feel is because their laziness. And, and look at how people are kept in legalistic spiritual slavery today. For the most part, through this subtle maneuvering of guilt. You're lazy. You're idle. You're not doing enough. That's why you're not serving the church enough. You just don't want to give more. It's your fault. You're not sacrificing. They don't, they don't point a gun to your heads. They mess with it. They make you think it's your fault. Again, just so I'm not blamed of preaching hyper grace, I'm not saying don't serve at church. I'm not saying don't tithe. I'm not saying worship does not require sacrifice. It does. Moses said it in verse 3. Worshiping involves sacrifice. Paul, in Romans 12, calls Christians to live their lives as what? As living sacrifices, pleasing to the Lord. You want to worship God, Paul asks, then get on a sacrificial altar. But the difference is, someone who's being enslaved remains on the sacrificial altar because somebody else has coerced and controlled them to stay there. Someone who's worshiping remains on a sacrificial altar by their own volition and choice. The enslaved are coerced onto the altar and held down by others there. The worshiper willingly climbs onto the altar and stays there even when other people tell them to get off. They remain there. Willingly, not as slavish sacrifice. That's the mark of the worshiper. That's what God wants from his people. But how can God produce such a people for himself? Let's continue in the passage. Let's go to the last point. God's affectionate silence. Look at what the Israelites did in verse 20. After being gaslit by Pharaoh. Right? They met, or in the Hebrew there, they, they pounced, they attacked Moses and Aaron, who were waiting for them as they came out of, from Pharaoh. And they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge you, because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and have put a sword in their hands to kill us. Oh, how quickly did they turn. In a split second, they went from cheering on God's chosen deliverer to judging and cursing him. Now, this is a bit of twist in the narrative. It's not expected, right? Because usually in stories like this, the ones being saved, who are the victims, they're portrayed as the innocent and helpless ones. But that's not at all the case here. God's people very quickly turned and cursed the hero Moses and sided with the villain Pharaoh. They finally showed their true colors. They were never really interested in worshiping God in the first place. They were just interested in themselves. And then the narrative breaks down even more than the expected one that we would probably think should happen, right? In verse 22 and 23, as, as the story closes, Moses, the supposed hero, does the same thing. And Moses turns to God, turns to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, why have you done this evil to your people? Why did you ever send me? For since I come to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Moses turned to accuse God, and at this point the whole narrative just breaks apart. 
all over the place. The villain wasn't the only bad guy here, but the ones being saved cursed their savior, and the supposed savior here, Moses, accused God. It's like the whole place stopped, and everybody just started yelling at everybody else, right? Fellow, uh, Pharaoh yelled at Israel for being lazy. Israel yelled at Moses for making their life harder, and Moses yelled at God for not following through on his promises. But if you notice, there is one person in the story who remains silent. In fact, throughout the whole chapter, he hasn't said a word. Who is that? It's God. Everyone was talking. Everyone was blaming and cursing the other person. Everyone was in it for their own good. But you know what God was doing? He kept his mouth shut. Why? Because he had nothing to say? Because he didn't care? Because he didn't listen? Oh, he heard. He listened. Take a look back at verse 15. We see the Israelites here crying out to their abuser, Pharaoh. Then the foreman of the people of Israel came and cried out to Pharaoh, why do you treat your servants like this? And how did Pharaoh treat their cries? By talking over them. Now, I want to give, uh, bring our attentions back to Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 and 25. You see a contrast here between God and Pharaoh. The Israelites did the same thing to God. They also cried out to God. Look at the stark difference, though. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. This is really important. Do you see the contrast? The Israelites cried out to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh yelled back at them. The Israelites cried out to God. What did God do? He listened. He heard. But that's not all God did. You remember Isaiah 53 and how it describes Jesus Christ? He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. You know, it's pretty ironic. The Bible is full of ironies. Here we see in Exodus chapter 5, God's people cursing and judging Moses, God's redeemer. What they didn't know was God's true plan of redemption that one day God himself will come down and he himself will be the redeemer of his people that Moses couldn't be. How? By being judged unfairly. By being cursed up upon a cross and by not saying a word to defend himself. But by willingly sacrificing himself to redeem you and me. The eternal God closed his mouth so that he can take your sins and my sins upon himself, so that he can take our curses upon himself. That's his redemption plan. Not Moses. Moses was just meant to point to him. See, unlike Pharaoh, God doesn't just yell at you and demand sacrifices. He listens to you, and he sacrificed himself. And you know what will happen? when you finally see who God truly is and distinct him from this tyrant Pharaoh, you know what will happen? All the sacrifices that you do for him will all of a sudden feel festive. Accompanied not by wailing, but by songs and worship. Because unlike Pharaoh, he doesn't use a whip to force you to obedience. He took the whip and served you. 
He doesn't build his kingdom with mortar and brick produced by slaves. He built his kingdom with true worshipers born out of his blood. The Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 20, section 1. The liberty which Christ has purchased for believers under the gospel consists in their freedom from the guilt of sin, the condemning wrath of God, the curse of the moral law. You're free from all that. And that they're being delivered from this present evil world, bondage from Satan and dominion of sin. You're free from that. From the evil of afflictions, the sting of death, the victory of the grave. You're free from that. And everlasting damnation as also in their free access to God and their yielding obedience unto him, not of slavish fear, but a childlike love and willing mind. Who's forcing you to do this Christian thing? Who's making you come here? Is somebody else? Is your own guilt forcing you? Who's nailing you down on the altar? You know how to break out of that? You have to first see your king nailing himself down for you that you may be free. Only then, only then will you willingly climb on that altar. Only after you realize your king willingly climbed on a cross for you, then, just maybe then, all your sacrifices for him will begin to feel festive and not slavish. Be free, Christian. Leave Egypt. Come and worship God. Come and worship the one who sacrificed himself for you. Let's pray. Father, may those whom you have given ears truly hear, may those whom you've given eyes truly see, May you reveal your son in your word to your people through your spirit and free your church as you write your eternal truth upon all of our hearts for your glory. Amen.